0: Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by Mary Beth Brueggemann, a Marine Corps veteran, wife and mother, and president of The Mission Continues, Mary Beth, thank you for making time for me today.
1: Hi, great to be with you, Melissa.
0: I was introduced to you a few years ago through the Mission Continues, a national nonprofit organization that empowers veterans to find purpose through community impact. And during one of the many workshops I had with you, I was drawn to your confidence and relatability because I knew you were genuinely interested in connecting with people and fostering inclusion. And I felt it went beyond rank in service branch, and I really appreciated that quality of your leadership. You're currently the president of the Mission Continues, which I'd like to talk about today, but let's start with where you're from originally and what your experiences were that led you to serving in the Marine Corps.
1: Sure, um, well, great to be with you. And I'm so glad that we had a chance to meet those many years ago at our at one of our summits. Um, it's great to be back here with you. Um, so I I was born to two Peace Corps parents. Um, both of my, my parents met in the Peace Corps and they were returned Peace Corps volunteers when I was born. And so I think I was born into a life of service and certainly born to parents who understood what it meant to serve. They served in a very different way <laughs> in the Peace Corps. And I don't know that they ever could have predicted that I would have gone into the military. We don't have a strong legacy of military service in my family. But I do have a great uncle who's my grandmother's brother who I was very close to growing up who graduated from the Naval Academy in their class of 1945. And he gradu- he was one of the classes that graduated early. He graduated in 44 after three years so that he could go to World War II. And he served in World War II and had incredible stories about the war and being in the Navy during World War II. And I would just I would sit on his knee growing up and ask him questions. And I, I will always remember... Twirling his Naval Academy ring around his finger that was completely worn smooth. And so there were, you couldn't see much of anything on it anymore, none of the emblems or. Um, class year or anything like it was just this beautiful smooth gold ring and and I would sit on his lap and I would twirl this ring around his finger and ask him questions about the Naval Academy and ask him questions about the Navy and when I was 11 he took me to a Navy Air Force football game at the Naval Academy and I lived in Northern Virginia and um, it was easy to get to and I saw the midshipmen marching onto the field all as one in their uniforms and it was like it just clicked then that I want to be a part of that. And I've always been someone who wanted to be a part of something. That's very much true of me now. You know, I see a group of people doing something together and generally speaking, as long as they're gathering for good. I want to be a part of it. <laughs> I'm really curious as to why I'm not already a part of it. So this was just a, a you know the first memorable example of that and I I really wanted to be a part of this team, this group, this tribe that I could see was so closely knit and even just standing what you watch them march onto the football field together at the beginning of every football game. And I could see that they were they had some common purpose and the the discipline and the um you know the way they looked in their uniforms all of it I'm like this is just this is great. So that's how I was 11 when I decided I wanted to go to a military academy and I applied to Navy and Air Force and I ended up choosing Navy. So I got when I was at the academy I was able to decide at one at a point there after my junior year whether I wanted to go into the Navy or I wanted to apply to go into the Marine Corps. You have to be selected for the Marine Corps. And I, you know, again kind of Continuing down a bit of a common theme in my life, uh, I saw a harder path, one that I thought would be more challenging and therefore more rewarding in my in my mind, of the Marine Corps. And so that's that's the direction I went. Yeah, and I never I never looked back. And I've I've done things like that throughout my life where I saw uh, an opportunity to challenge myself, and I. Sometimes I regretted it, but most times most times they were the right the right thing for me.
0: <laughs> I can relate to your story in that when I was eleven, my dad was stationed at West Point and I used to go to the Service Academy football games and had a completely different reaction to seeing <laughs> what the cadets uh, went through. I admire that you accepted yeah. that realization for yourself so openly at a young age that you wanted to be a part of that. So you graduated from the Naval Academy in 99 during relative peacetime. I joined the Air Force in 95 and got out in '03. So you and I have that unique threshold of serving during peacetime yeah, right. and wartime, yeah. But especially for you as a Marine. So where was your first duty assignment?
1: Uh, Miramar, California. So I was stationed with the air wing and I selected combat engineering as my specialty coming out of um, my original my basic training for the Marine Corps the basic school. And I was an engineer with the air wing. And so in a relatively what many would consider a pretty cush assignment, Southern California, I was in San Diego. um, And it was, it was great. I mean, I had an opportunity to be a platoon commander and then a company commander and then deploy with my unit. But as you said, when I, Got out into the fleet in the Marine Corps, I was in a peacetime Marine Corps where people were scratching and clawing to find a way to deploy. You know, I mean, very few people, especially very few people from the air wing and from the unit I was in, had a chance to go on any kind of rotational deployment. And they were all rotational at that point. I mean, they were planned, they were scheduled out years in advance, they were what we, in the Marine Corps, we call them Marine Expeditionary Units. So that would be the only way I would have been able to deploy is by hopping on one of these six-month deployments. Um, And I would have been separated from my unit to do that. I would have had to be plucked to do it. And it it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't going to happen. Like I just wasn't in the right place and it wasn't the right job. So I honestly thought I would go through my whole time in the Marine Corps, never, never, and I'm putting this in air quotes, getting to deploy. And, you know, fast forward to now when, Uh, And I'm married to a now retired Marine who deployed uh, seven times, I think, during his active duty time and five of them in the last, you know, 10 years of his or eight years of his active duty time. It's just it's a it was a whole different world, you know?
0: Yeah. So how many women were with you when you graduated from the academy?
1: My class had was about twelve percent women. I think we started and finished with about twelve percent. So we had a lot of attrition in our class. We actually had the smallest class to graduate since the Vietnam War. That was our distinction. I don't know why. I mean, we have never identified why we had such high attrition. But I think the number of women dropped at the same rate. So we stayed at about twelve percent. Um, which now, you know, you fast forward. I, I just had my twentieth reunion. Uh, I guess a year and a half ago now. And they're at about almost 25% representation of women at the academies now, which I think is just incredible progress in in 20 years. And reaching that threshold of like the 30%, you actually, your voice gets heard at the table kind of thing, you know?
0: So you deployed to Iraq in 2003 as a company commander. Mm-hmm. How many women were in your command?
1: It's a really small percentage. I mean, there's only 8% in the Marine Corps overall. Still, there were 8% when I was in 20 years ago, and there's 8% now, which is a depressing statistic. I I don't know. As I look back, it was a really small number. I mean, they were there. Might have been one per platoon, so one per thirty or forty men. They were few and far between. And I wasn't. I was leading, uh, you know, a group of occupational specialties that within my command, within my my company, um, I had explosive ordnance disposal. I had motor T, motor transport. um, Some folks from motor transport. I had aircraft refueling folks and a number of other, it was kind of a catch-all company. We supported everything that happened on the airfield. And so they just, they were not specialties that had a lot of women in them. And uh, none of my folks that reported directly to me, so my platoon commanders, essentially none of them were women. I don't even think their senior staff were women, as I look back.
0: Going to Iraq in 2003, I remember the initial invasion and how intense it was. We thought they had weapons of mass destruction and anthrax. And I was set to deploy. We were getting ready for the medical side, just prepping for if people were to get exposed to different chemical agents, what would that be like? It was just, there was so much uncertainty and it happened pretty quickly that people were getting over there and then just trying to set everything up and figure it all out. How long was your deployment?
1: Not long. So we, de- we deployed to Kuwait in January and it was, it was a lot like you, what you described. It was kind of a quick, I think we had been, this was 2003 that I deployed. So right before the invasion. Uh, so we'd been waiting since 2001, since September 11th, since that day, we had sea bags packed and we were ready to go for two years, almost a year and a half. So when we deployed, though, it was like on a dime. I mean, we probably knew the date in late December and deployed in a couple weeks later. So we got to Kuwait and we were there being, you know, just getting ready, planning, training, not knowing if we would ever cross the border. I mean, I I did not know that we were crossing the border until we heard it on the BBC as we were sitting at a little deployed outpost in Kuwait, right, looking at the border for Kuwait, of Kuwait. Trucks staged, everything ready to go, and that's when we heard the go ahead. Was when President Bush gave the go ahead. You know, like we we heard it when the country heard it. But it was it was quick, and then we were home um, early June, end of May, early June. So we were actually in Iraq from we inv- we were there as part of the initial invasion force. So I think we crossed the border on the 19th of March, and we were there until early May, maybe maybe mid-May, and then we went home, went back and sat in Kuwait for two weeks waiting to redeploy. So we were one of those, like, in and out. And here's the kicker, and this sounds so ridiculous. I, I'm embarrassed saying this now, almost 20 years later. We thought we'd won. Yeah. We thought it was over. Amen. I mean, that's what the sentiment was at the time, was like, man, that was well, that worked. Like, the folks who were coming in behind us are just coming in to clean things up and, and, and tidy it up. The Army can, can stay for a little while longer, but that'll be it. And, oh, boy. To even imagine that there are still folks fighting and dying in, in that country and in Afghanistan is mind-blowing to me.
0: Who knew it was going to last this long with really no end in sight? What did your family think of you deploying? Because it was such an uncertain time. And, you know, the internet was really kind of coming up with blogs and people were starting to share information online. It was just, there was no... Um, social media, like Facebook or Instagram, there might've been MySpace, but I don't think people were really using it, but it was such a weird time. So what did your family think, um, of your deployment? Yeah.
1: Well, and this is another one that, you know, I look back on it, it feels like such ancient times, but (laughs) we, we were writing letters home by hand. Um, and we sat when we, when we left the base, the larger base in Kuwait, and we went and staged at the Iraqi border. We were there for about a week. And all we did when we were there was play spades and write letters home. And that was it. And so those were the last letters my parents got were like, I'm here, I'm sitting on the border. I, we don't have any idea what will happen anymore than you do. But when we cross the border, I'm not going to have email. I won't, there'll be no postal service. I won't be able to send letters home. So just be ready for that. And that's exactly what happened. So I sent, you know, my last letter on whatever day and we crossed the border and my parents heard nothing from me. And they are following, and I I wasn't in a serious relationship. I didn't have, you know, I wasn't married at the time, although that's to come. Um, and I didn't, uh, I just, I have my parents and my brother. And my older brother, he and I are very, very close. Um, he is a trader. He was a trader, uh, not traitor, but a trader on Wall Street um, in New York City. And so he was there, watched the towers fall on 9-11 and, you know, which of course only brought us closer And he was in New York City on the day or so after the invasion, and he got a call from a good friend of his who said, Chris, your sister's on the front page of the journal. And sure enough, there was a reporter that had flown into our little Ford operating base that I was at the time running for a short time until someone more senior was there. That was my job was to run this little airfield in southern Iraq. And he was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And there was an article on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, First Lieutenant Mary Beth Antonelli at the time. And, you know, running this forward operating base and, and refueling point and this whole thing about like the chaos there, just how much was happening in the early days of the war. And that was how my parents knew where I was and how I was and that I was okay. And they bought like 50 copies of the Wall Street Journal and, um, and just, it was I mean, it was such an interesting way for them to find out and funny story. in hindsight, we still have a copy of the paper, but that's how they knew. And then it was also, I had a friend who flew into our airfield, a helicopter pilot who was going back to his ship. So he flew in and and went back. And when he flew in, I said, well, here here's my parents' email address. They met you once. you know, we were friends in San Diego. Like send them an email when you get back and tell them you saw me, and I'm okay. So, That's how we communicated until we got back to Kuwait and could email again.
0: When you come back home, where was home for you at that point? Was it still California?
1: Yeah, briefly. I got orders while I was in Iraq. So I came home to San Diego, packed up and moved to Annapolis, Maryland, where I taught at the Naval Academy for my last four years on active duty.
0: Is that a pretty unique trajectory?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, there aren't a whole lot of people who, there aren't a whole lot of Marines stationed at the Naval Academy, but common in the sense that in the Marine Corps, there's a, like, you essentially have on and off time in your career, and you've got your operational tours, which I had done at that point for three years, and then you take a, what we call a, a B-billet, you know, or a non-deploying tour. And my non-deploying tour could have been something like going to um, Paris Island and going to boot camp or teaching, you know, instructing at boot camp or something like, No, I'm going to forget the acronym, but MOI, uh, Marine Officer Instructor for ROTC at a college or a group of colleges somewhere. And the Naval Academy was an option and I was a graduate and they were really looking for folks who had just come home from Iraq. You know, again, there was nobody there with combat experience. So they, I was fortunate. They pulled me and it was a great, it was such a great duty station. I was so glad to be back at my alma mater.
0: You must've been one of the first people to come back from war. the academy with that real world experience and you weren't really too far removed from graduation at that point
1: there was one midshipman who was older than me and he loved he loved holding that over me he was a prior enlisted guy when he got to the academy um and i was i was only five years removed from graduation when i went back um so yeah it was it was a tight turn i was actually the first i was the only person who was stationed in bancroft hall so where the midshipmen live and and I, I was I had really direct leadership contact with them during my first three years back there and for the first year because the pipeline to get into that job is through a master's program which I didn't do I skipped that so they wanted me directly in that role because I was coming straight from Iraq so I was the only person and the first person to be in that kind of close contact with the midshipman who had had any experience in a combat zone so that was unique as well. And again, there were plenty of Marines now coming into the Naval Academy around me who had experience in combat zones and who had direct, who were infantry men who had been in very different kind of combat than what I was in, but they weren't in such close proximity to the midshipmen. So I had a chance to tell that story and to, I mean, it just gave me a whole different perspective on like what we do at the Naval Academy and why some things are really important and frankly, why other things really are not. And And I had an opportunity and a seat at the table Mm -hmm. to say, this is not where we should be focusing right now. Like these midshipmen are all graduating into combat. Every single one of them is going to deploy. Now, we should assume that that's true. Navy, Marine Corps, Mm it doesn't matter. Like the pace right now is insane. And we have to prepare them in a really different way than we've had to since Vietnam. And that's going to force us to think differently.
0: So you taught for four years at the Naval Academy. And did you know at that point that you were going to separate or?
1: Well, I met my husband in Iraq.
0: What? Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I, I skipped over that part.
1: <laughs> yep. Um, no, this is great. We we are going to be on Oprah someday. We are going to tell this story. It's going to be so romantic in hindsight. Those early days of in the little air base where I was. So it was called Jalaba. And at the time, it was just an arm, a refueling point. So it was just us. Helicopters landing in the middle of the desert and we had set up refueling and rearming for them. He was a combat uh, a uh, attack helicopter pilot. He flew Cobras for the Marine Corps and he was one of the first pilots to land with his co-pilot at this refueling point. And it, he and I love to tell this story to our kids and just joke about, you know, how overly romantic it was. It was not, of course. I hadn't showered in 2 weeks. Um <laughs> I didn't um it was I mean it was just terrible like my hair it was one of those things I had my hair up in a bun and when I took the rubber band out at night it just stayed in a bun because it was just shellacked with sand and grime um but yeah I love it first sight so I walked up in my I was in mop level four so chemical protective level four with mask on when I greeted him and uh we've been married it'll be 17 years on Sunday Uh, but anyways, fast forward. So I'm home now. I got, he, he, we got married pretty quickly. So we met, you know, March of 2003. We were married in February of 2004, three days before he deployed again. So we, we got married before he would deploy again. And then I got pregnant with my oldest daughter in, um, well, she was born in July two, 2006. So it was the end of my, it was the last year I was on active duty. So I was on active duty for about a year with a child. Up until that point, and even through my pregnancy, I wanted nothing more than to go back to the fleet and be a company commander. Go back to a a combat engineering unit, and I would probably be stationed in Camp Lejeune. My husband would be stationed there as well, flying helicopters, and that was my plan. I did well in the Marine Corps. I, I um, I think I was successful as an officer, and I had so much opportunity to do more, and I was excited about that. And I remember my husband, who was, you know, who's very supportive and will proudly cl- declare himself to be a feminist seven days of the week. And he is. He would look at me and just kind of shake his head and and say, like, I, you're not going to want to do that after you have this baby. And I, the boy, did that make me mad. I mean, that was just like, well, you, why don't you get out? Why don't you get out and be a stay-at-home dad? And I'll go, I want to be a company commander. Why should we choose your career over mine? I mean, we had, they were like petulant fights as I look back at them because, He just could see a different, he could just see something different than I could see. He wasn't right. I wasn't wrong. It was just, he had a very different understanding of what was going to be reality. And uh, frankly, he would have gotten out and let me choose my career if that had been the right thing for me and for us. But he was right. It, It wasn't. And when my daughter was 11 weeks old, I was still on active duty at this point. And I was thinking, maybe I'll continue on and be a company commander. It was right at that decision point. She was 11 weeks old when she got a really severe urinary tract infection, little tiny baby, and those can kill little tiny babies. And so we were actually admitted to the hospital together for almost a week. Um, She was septic. So, you know, just horrible blood infection, kidney infection. And uh, it foretold a lot of issues she had in her early years. They tested her for meningitis, which has a 50% survival rate for infants. So horrifying time. I got out of the hospital with her and handed in my resignation to, you know, and I just said, this is my, this is my date. I'm out. I, I, I never, ever want a childcare provider to have to tell me that my daughter is unresponsive and I need to come pick her up and she won't eat and she won't wake up from her nap. You know, like I just, it was horrifying for me. So I think that was, and, and again, that was another one, like I never looked back. It wasn't the right, it wasn't the wrong decision for me. I have, I loved my time on active duty and I, I missed the Marine Corps to an extent. I've always thought I missed what I could have done. You know, I don't I don't know where I don't know how I could have helped the Marine Corps and other women coming up behind me if I had stayed in and tried to shatter some glass ceilings that were, especially in combat engineering, were just like lower and lower and and still trouble me to this day. But yeah, that was my that was my decision point. And it was really at the time it was crystal clear to me what I needed
0: to do. So you transition out you've got a new baby, but you still are a person who continues service and wants to continue your service to other people. When did the mission continues come onto your radar? Yeah,
1: not for a while. And those were, those were tough years. Um, I was, a, I worked part-time and full-time kind of in and out for a while. And then I dropped out of the workforce. I had three kids at that point. My husband was deploying again. He was in command of a unit. So I was the commanding officer's wife with all that that entails and comes with the, some official and unofficial duties. I did a ton of volunteering as you said like I was I was searching for ways to serve. I was searching for ways to give back without even really knowing what I was looking for or what I was missing. Right. I just knew I had to I had to get out there. I coached girls on the run. I taught English as a second language in the evenings. I volunteered on base. I volunteered with his unit. And that filled me up. But I also have always been, and likely always will be for my professional life, somebody who wanted a career. And I was really anxious to get back to something that could help me find that sense of service and purpose and ability to give back in a career. And so when we moved back to D.C., my husband and I, he made a commitment to me that he would get us back to Washington, D.C., where I could um, go get a graduate degree, which I had been really wanting to do just so I could figure out what that next thing was. Like, will that help me? Will that help me zero in on what on what my future can look like? And and hopefully at the time, I just had so much fear about this gap in my resume. You know, i had been out of the workforce for three years. Very common for women and and women who are parents to have these this couple of years where uh, they need to be home. and there's so much there is such a um, shake in confidence when it's time to on ramp back into the workforce after that. Mm-hmm. so that's that was kind of my path. And then um, I was in grad school when I met uh, through my husband. I met our at a woman who is still on our board and was on our board who became a mentor to me and a wonderful friend to me and and slid an open job description in front of me um, that happened to be available at the Mission Continues and, you know, the rest is history.
0: The Mission Continues came onto my radar 13 years after I separated from the Air Force. And like you, I was always looking for a way to connect and find that community and camaraderie and just be a part of a group. And fast forward to 2016, I moved to Los Angeles and got involved with a veteran organization that was connected to the arts. And that really surprised me because, in my experience, there wasn't much of the art world connected to the military. Um, And I studied the art world in undergrad and grad school. But when I came to LA, the veteran program I was with was connected with a theater program, And with veterans, and this guy was always wearing this blue shirt, this blue shirt with the Mission Continues written on it. And I was like, Hermie, what's up with this shirt? What's this Mission Continues thing? (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, it's a veteran-based organization, and we work with local communities, and we do service projects, and you should totally get involved. And because I was new to the city and didn't know anyone, I figured, why not connect with some vets and give this a shot? And once I did, I met the most amazing people. And I was like, "Ugh, this is what I've been missing. And I tried to push that part of me aside, that military part of me aside. But I mean, come on. It's a part of who I am. I grew up in the military and... Uh, now I'm here with a podcast about win- women in the military.
1: <laughs> was your first experience with the mission continues with the the women's summit that you came to?
0: No, I was a fellow, and then the women's summit I think came, was brand new. Yeah, and came after. And so, because I had such a positive experience with the fellowship program, yeah. when the women's program came available, I was like, "Oh, I'm in. Mm-hmm. This is an organization. It's proven." Great people, great results. It just the, the structure of it was so wonderful. The leadership, you and the other ladies in the, in the leadership, Sarah and Kate, um, just felt great. And there was a sense of purpose and drive. And I loved that organization and how I can bring these resources and my skills to my community to make it better. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's always what it is about for me. It's how, how can I be of service to other people and create opportunity for other people? Yeah. Why would I turn my back on that when it's opened so many doors for me? And it can, it has continued to open doors for me. It's a reason why I'm in the job I have now. I'm an assistant to a literary agent. I want to eventually write for TV and film. And um, my boss is such a supporter of the veteran community. He He's like, you bring so many skills to the workforce. You're so inclusive with everybody. You're not making anything about yourself. And oftentimes in the creative world... <laughs> or maybe any world, is me, me, me. And what can I do to make myself look better? And the spotlight should be here. That's not what I'm about. It's really how can everybody be a part of this, which helps with camaraderie. It helps the entire team. Everything just elevates.
1: Well, I, and I love that you have an employer who sees that in you. I think that's, um, that's something veterans should look for when they're looking for employment because too often you have employers who, especially some of the really big companies, they've set some public goal around hiring veterans, and they may or may not understand exactly why they're doing it. And I don't mean to imply they're doing it for the wrong reasons. um, But they don't always know what value people like you are bringing them. They think that it looks great publicly, and we have to give back to those who have given to us. But, you know, Melissa, of all people, you're someone who understands, like, you're not asking for anything from this world. That's just not what that's just not what most veterans are looking for is for for someone to give to them. it's It's not about that. It's the opposite. It's I uh, actually no, I'm here to I, I am I thrive on giving back. I thrive on you asking me to give more and to lead and to be a part of something. and And I think we've got to we, as a veteran population, bear some responsibility in helping to shift how employers think about veterans and utilize those skills.
0: Agreed. Uh, My experience has been very positive with that, and I hope my work at my current job and subsequent jobs keeps the door open for other vets and keeps vets in mind with hiring managers. So the Mission Continues has really expanded their offerings and opportunities and has grown a lot since I started in the fellowship program a few years ago. Now there's the Women's Veteran Leadership Program and the Service Leadership Corps, can you share a bit about your experiences with the mission continues and the evolution of these programs?
1: Definitely. Yeah. And I've been with the organization now for six years, so it's been fascinating to see it evolve in all that time as well. So the fellowship program was a very, as you know, very individual opportunity. I mean, you connected with other fellows through your orientation weekend and, and many maintained relationships through their time and even till now, but Ultimately, it was a it was a personal and professional development program that had a lot of one-on-one, high-touch um, opportunity. The thing that was missing from that that we found, or the thing that we needed to add, it didn't need to, it wasn't missing from the program itself, but it needed an addition was some team-based mm-hmm. program mm-hmm. that we could use to supplement and to build on what our fellows at the time, again, these individual veterans, how could they be part of something bigger? So that's when we, it was now probably eight years ago or so that we created our first service platoons. And the service platoons are that team-based opportunity, locally driven, often place-based operations. So for instance, in LA, you've got folks working in Watts and in Compton, Mm -hmm. and they're embedded there. I mean, they're really, um, they've developed really deep relationships with local community organizations, and they are standing side by side with them and shoulder to shoulder with them, working on long-term a long-term vision for their community. And the veterans are bringing leadership and they're bringing skills and experience that benefit these community organizations and the communities themselves. And it's an opportunity for veterans to connect with each other, just as you said, to like tap into that part of their identity that they may, or my puppy for your viewers, <laughs> shaking <laughs> collar uh, for your listeners, um, you know, who they who they may or may not have stayed connected to, but either way, there's some comfort in, in that shared experience with other veterans. And it's also asking veterans to get out of that, you know, like you don't, veterans can't be the only people in your Rolodex if you're to have a healthy reintegration. So it's a connection to community and it's asking people to um, see that connection to non-veterans as well. So the service platoon program is now what has evolved the most in my time here. And we sunsetted the fellowship program and in its wake was born what we now call our service leadership corps. Um, which is a program that trains the leaders of these service platoons. So that leadership team that um, develops those deep relationships and communities and creates great service project experiences for all of us to come and volunteer at and for anybody to go and volunteer with, they go through a six-month training program um, with us that helps them learn not only some of the real um, hard skills that they need to, to run a service platoon recruiting, Service project skills, you know, like learning your way around Home Depot kind of stuff, but they also learn skills in things like asset-based community development. So a theory of community development that puts the assets of the community at the center. It's a very um, asset-based approach, you know, vice a needs-based approach. They they do some deep dives into cultural competence and bias. And they talk very openly about race and about gender and about inclusion and about diversity in ways that were really new to me coming out of the military. And for at least considering my military experience, this is not what we talked about in the military. You know, as a woman, I think I had an early interest in it because I was not somebody who felt included in the Marine Corps, but most veterans come out and, and consider that the military is so diverse, it's a melting pot, that must be the pinnacle of diversity and inclusion. And it can be the pinnacle of diversity in some aspects. We have an overrepresentation of Black and Latinx in the military, but it is absolutely not the model of inclusion because it's a nullification of everything that's different about people. And it's a, you blend together into now, now let's all, let's all set those differences aside don't bring them to the table, now we're all one. And you know that's the opposite of what the power is of inclusion. So we have to retrain and retool some of that in veterans and help them see a different way of thinking about working with teams. Absolutely an imperative of a different way of working in communities. Most of the communities we serve in are communities of color so we have to ask these veterans to think very differently about how they approach across racial lines, across lines of gender, across lines of identity, I and mean, in so many different ways lines of ability and everything else. And that's been probably the most fulfilling part of this journey for I think the mission continues overall and certainly for me in the last 5 or 6 years is watching that come to life, talking about that very openly with veterans for for many of them it's the first time and and just seeing an opportunity that i think we have as an organization to serve in a really different way than a lot of our veteran peer organizations and because again it's an operational imperative of ours we're serving in we're serving in communities that are sitting on the margins and and people who are sitting on the margins of society and and it requires a very different skill set in order to do that well
0: where do you see the continuation the evolution of the mission continues in the next 3 to 5 years
1: yeah Well, more of what I'm talking about there. So, you know, just really digging in and becoming the best at this kind of leadership. Um, And again, I think there's a lot of organizations that build on and teach leadership skills to veterans. I really think, I know that we're doing it in a very unique way when we put inclusion at the center of that, when we put an equity focus, a justice focus at the center of that. And that's exciting to us as an organization. We have an opportunity here. We also, the, Service Leadership Corps and the Women Veterans Leadership Program, both skills based programs, network building. We are building around those programs now additional opportunities to come learn with the mission continues. So we think of it almost as a, and this is lowercase, this isn't the name of it, but like a center of excellence for veterans where you can come and learn. um, You can go through one of these big, you know, longer term programs. You can also come for a weekend and deep dive into advocacy. You can deep dive into asset-based community development if that's something you're really interested in. You can deep dive, and this is our one of the first things we'll build out around those original two, deep dive into inclusive leadership. What does that mean? What do we mean when we say that? What does it mean for veterans? What does it mean for the work we do? Deep dive even into affinity spaces. So we have this women veterans leadership program. We don't have a similar space for the veterans of color that serve with us or for the LGBTQ veterans that serve with us. But I see that as a future opportunity to bring people together into some affinity space and problem solve together and talk about some of their their unique challenges, just as you and I have been able to do as women. So building around that, building virtual opportunities to learn, building um, opportunities to come together in different ways through through this, you know, lowercase center, you know, which is not a brick and mortar institution at this point, but is a is a space, I think, for veterans to come. It, it all revolves around these service platoons. So all of those learning experiences are meant to help build up and train those who serve within our service platoons. So that work in communities remains central to how we plan and think. That's what we're putting at the center of our planning. This year, we're we're really looking forward to commemorating the 20 years since 9-11. We're coming up on a 20th anniversary, which to you and I is probably mind blowing. Yeah. <laughs> And folks coming off of active duty who weren't even born on 9-11 now this year. So thinking, how do we commemorate that the 20 years of service that have taken place since in and out of uniform? And how do we now celebrate what the next 20 years can look like as we shift the country's focus to a country where more people can serve and more opportunities to come together and more opportunities to bridge divide through service? And that's a big focus of ours as well.
0: Well, I'm grateful to the Mission Continues and for the opportunities the organization offers to veterans. And as you mentioned, the outreach extends to communities nationwide, so you don't have to be a veteran to participate in the local service projects. And I encourage the listeners to visit the website at missioncontinues.org. So you mentioned people who are serving and coming off of active duty who were born after 9-11, which trips me out, but leads to a question I like to wrap each episode with. And that is, if a young woman were to come up to you today and say she's thinking of joining the military, what would you say to her?
1: I would be totally supportive, and I would want very much to stay in touch with her and help arm her with some of the tools that I think she would need to be successful. I would give her some advice, whether she asked for it or not. (laughs) I would tell her to find good friends and take care of each other because that's what helped me stay safe. And I I mean that like that protected my physical safety on many occasions was having people around me that um, could look after me and take care of me. And I hate to say that that's important, but I know that it is. I know that that's just that's our world right now. And especially when you're in a, a such a male dominated environment. And I would, I would want to arm her with just some, just some advice and, and friendship and someone to look up to as she went through this journey and someone to, to share what it, what it, you know, some challenges she was having that I might recognize and understand. I have to say, though, Melissa, if you've talked to younger women um, who are coming, going in and out of the military now, some of the things, like sometimes I find myself going in hard with younger women on, like, oh, it's, you know, it's going to be really tough. It's going to be really male dominated. And some of them, as they get more experienced, are like, yeah, that's not what it's like at all anymore. <laughs> and I'm so heartened by that. I mean, many of them are really this generation of, of young people is having a very different experience than what you and I had. And that makes me um, very hopeful and very happy. And I don't take my eye off the ball. We have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. But um, I think that's really, that's really hopeful.
0: Yeah. I recently read an article on CNN.com that the Air Force graduated its largest class of female test pilots in history from the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base in California. And it was a group of five women. And they said, yeah, these doors have been open for us. There's been this opportunity. And where's the rest of us? We're ready for more women to come through. So yeah, it's exciting.
1: I met a a young woman who was going into the Marine Corps from the Naval Academy and she had selected artillery was her specialty, which was close to women when I was in. And I went nuts. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so proud of you. This is amazing. And she started backing away from me. Like, what is wrong with me? You crazy lady. It's not that big a deal. And I'm like, look, I know that for you, this is normal now and, but I am melting inside. Like you have no idea. And I want you to take a minute to appreciate how much work has been done in the last, you know, let's just say 50 years, but it's long, long more than that for you Mm -hmm. to be able to get here. This is a victory for me, for my peers, for all the women that came before you. So whether you see it as a victory or not, you need to allow us this celebration it's a really big deal to meet a young woman going into into artillery in the Marine Corps right now. That is that is just incredible.
0: Mary Beth, thank you so much for making time for me today. This has been really wonderful.
1: Oh, it's great to see you again. Thanks for thanks for the conversation. This was terrific and um, always always terrific to connect with you.
0: And thank you for listening. If you're a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option one, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year.